The information and views you hear on this podcast should never take the place of sitting down with your doctor and establishing a treatment plan that's best for you. On this podcast, we want you to live your best life with MS. And for some people, that means a lot of adventure. And our guest today, that meant standing on the peak of the tallest mountain in the entire world. Wow. We have Lori Schneider joining us on this episode of the Mastering MS Podcast. Thanks for joining us on the Mastering MS Podcast. I'm Mike Marillo. I'm a news reporter and anchor at WTOP in the Washington, D.C. area, and I have MS. And I'm Nick Irons, and my dad has MS. And we are here today with an exciting episode for you. We're going to talk to somebody who's done something I wouldn't even fathom being able to do. And Nick, you could. And Nick, you're, you've been giddy about this interview. I'm so excited. <laughs> we are talking to Lori Schneider, and Lori has made it to the top of Everest. And she's made it to the top of every peak and on every continent, which is called the Seven Summits. So thank you for coming. <laughs> thank you for having me. So I'm excited to be here because you're both an inspiration to me. So thank you for inviting me. Well, we're so excited to have you here on the podcast. Let's get right into the Everest and you know the, the all the peaks. You know, what got you to do that after your MS diagnosis? Well, it really started back when I was in high school and my dad had talked about someday wanting to go to Africa and climbing Kilimanjaro. And I said, oh, someday I'll go with you. And you know, he was, my dad was athletic and a runner. And uh, well, about 20 years later, I went to Africa met him, and we summited on his 61st birthday. Nice. Wow. So, yeah, he, he was incredible. So a few years went by, and he said, let's do another climb together, and this one has to be harder, which I kind of laughed because you almost forget that, <laughs> how difficult they are. And uh, so I said, sure. And so we started training to climb Mount Aconcagua, which is the highest peak in South America. Well, right after we sent in our money for that climb was the day that I woke up numb from head to toe on one side with MS. So after that diagnosis, I really feared losing my physical ability. So I started to accelerate doing some climbs and it eventually turned into a goal to climb the highest peak on each of the seven continents. So what order did you do them? So you started with Kilimanjaro. Yes, I started and finished. I did Kilimanjaro twice, but I started with Kilimanjaro. Then I went to Mount Aconcagua, which is South America's highest peak. Next, I climbed Mount Elbrus in Russia, which is considered Europe's highest peak because it's right on the border of Europe and Asia. And then from there, I climbed Denali, which was one hell of a climb. (laughs) Very, very difficult physically because of, you know, carrying 60 pounds on my back and dragging 60 in a sled. So that's North America's highest peak. After that, I went to Australia and climbed Mount Kosciuszko, which was supposed to be a walk in the park easy. And it was the worst blizzard Australia had had in decades. And we had to start over the next day. So the only one I really got turned back on was supposedly the easiest. Uh, And then I went and did uh, Antarctica, Vincent Massif, 
cold, 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 <laughs> mentally a very difficult place to be for a month camping in a tent and finished up with Everest. And uh, all of these climbs were many years in between because I had to save money and up my training game as I progressed. And then ultimately back in 2011, I took a group of other people who had MS and some of Parkinson's disease back to Africa to kind of make that whole story come full circle. How did you manage your MS while also, you know, doing this amazing feat? Well, when I first got diagnosed with MS, like I said, I woke up one morning and it was like someone had drawn a line. One side of my body was numb, the other wasn't, head to toe. And the doctors thought that I'd had a stroke. So I went into the emergency room and they ran tests and it wasn't a stroke. Then they sent me to specialists thinking possibly lupus, Lyme's disease, brain cancer. And they ruled out MS because they had misread one of my early on uh, tests. So in the meantime, I had every imaginable MS symptom. I had uh, optic neuritis, so my vision was getting blurry. I had the tightness of chest and hard to breathe. I was having balance issues. I was having trouble speaking. I was you know, just having multi, multi-sensory problems all the way along. So after they finally came up with the diagnosis of MS, realizing that they'd misread a test, I just kept training, feeling like I had to do everything I physically could while I was still able. And I actually got stronger in the process (laughs) instead of weaker. So training for the climbs was sort of my my MS therapy of choice. And once you succeeded, I'd set a new goal for now in a year or in two years, I'm going to save up money and do the next one and the next one. And, and now, honestly, I've you know been diagnosed for almost 25 years and I don't have symptoms anymore. I still have the MS, obviously, because I get brain scans every year and those lesions, you know, are there in the brain, but I'm experiencing no symptoms and such a turnaround from what I thought my progression would be. And like so many of us with MS, we freak out when we get that diagnosis because we think this is it. This is the end of my you know, physical life and life as I know it. So for me, it was the start. I assume you've been on medications uh, ever since your diagnosis? You know, I everybody's different. And I was on some traditional medicines. And I also supplemented with things like yoga and meditation. And I've been able to now control my MS through diet and exercise and just you know keeping a really positive healthy lifestyle and so I'm I'm doing really well and I know I'm one of the lucky ones but I think we play a, a role in our recovery 
And but you say you still get scans each year to kind of see where the disease is. I do. Yeah, I meet with my neurologist twice a year. He's the head of neurology in at UW Madison, so this man, you know, knows <laughs> knows what he's looking at and talking about. And uh, he's been with me for you know well over a decade. What does he think of your strategy? I'm kind of curious because, you know, your, your strategy is obviously different than most. It is. And w- when I was first diagnosed back in Colorado, when I was living there, the whole idea with MS, I was told, was to don't do too much. Relax and, you know, don't overtax your body. Don't overheat your body. And I thought, I'm not going down without a fight. If this is the last year or two I got <laughs> I am so going to go for the gusto. You know, I just, I couldn't imagine saying, okay, gee, I think I'll take up knitting and sit nothing against knitting. <laughs> I don't have that. All the knitters out there. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, I just thought, I am not going down this way. I am going to do everything I can. And, you know, for me, that gave me my life back. And so... After I moved from Colorado, I got hooked up with the neurologist back here in the Midwest that I've been seeing, you know, for over 20 years. And he said, every case is different. And let's look at you as an individual. What did your body do before? And what do you want to do with it? And let's get you on that path and keep you going and and I've actually given some talks with him since since all of this started. So, yeah. But I I think he he says people don't tell their patients anymore to just you know be couch potatoes. They tell them to keep their body strong. And for me, that was the best medicine, mentally and physically that I could have ever had. As a fitness professional, I say, yay to that. Yay. Well, that's for you know, that's how Nick and I met because after my diagnosis, I, I, I wanted to get the health angle of my life in order. And I happened to stumble across an article of his swim of the Mississippi River. Uh, he swam the entire Mississippi River, if you haven't heard in prior, prior podcasts. Um, you know, and then a bike ride around the nation. I'm nowhere near that. Will I ever be anywhere near that? I won't be climbing Everest. But I've still, you know, I wanted to get myself in order. And that's how I found Nick. And the change in how I felt, you know, I was blaming MS on a lot of things. And we've had this discussion I just had myself to blame for a lot of things because once I got myself in a healthier lifestyle, I noticed that difference. And it sounds like you kind of noticed the same as well. I did. And and I had to change my mental attitude about being diagnosed with MS. Like many people, I hid the diagnosis from the world for well over a year because I always thought I don't want people feeling sorry for me. And I realized later that I was still grieving my MS, and we do that when we get diagnosed. It's okay to grieve it, but it can't go on forever because then I was feeling sorry for myself. You know, why me? Why did I get this? You know, I'm 43 years old at the time, and why did I get this? And now I think, well, everybody gets something, and for me, it was just a wake-up call to start start living a life I wanted. And that included being physically active before. So, you know, why not keep doing it? So yeah, you know, go to a gym if you 
can and, and do outdoor activities and do things that make you excited about life. And, and I think the mental attitude really changed my world in a huge way. So, and didn't you decide to tell the world that you had MS while you were on the peak of one of the mountains? Yeah. On the second climb, Aconcagua, <laughs> which like I said, I, I got to, I woke up numb four days after I sent in my payment to do that climb oh, yeah. and you train for a year. So a year in advance, you know, I'm, I finally told my parents after six months, cause I was afraid cause my dad was going to go with me again. I was afraid he was going to say, we can't go. You can't do this. So I didn't even tell him for a while. And after I climbed that mountain and I came off the summit, I sat on a rock and I thought, you know, girl, if you are strong enough to climb almost 23,000 foot peak, you're strong enough to just say, hey, I have MS. I love it. And not let it define your whole being. Yes, it's something that I have physically that's going on with my body, but it's not me. I'm what's in here. And I really decided I, I had to come clean. So when I got back off that mountain, and I was a teacher in Colorado for 20 years, and, and the local paper wanted to interview me, and I walked in and, and uh, I said, by the way, I just have to tell you, I have MS. And she said, whoa, whole different interview. <laughs> Start over. And it came out the next day in the paper. And uh, and my friends were calling, you never told us. And it's like, don't take it personally. I couldn't tell myself. I couldn't say MS out loud because it mortified me. So, yeah, yeah you know, it, it's, it's a hard thing. And some people choose never to share it. But for me... Coming clean helped me accept it and move forward, and I, I needed to move forward. You have to take it in your own way, right? You have to chart your own course in ways. You lean on others to help you, but you know you chart your own way, and I think it's great for me too. I you know I'm a public person uh, when it comes to my job, but I waited about a year. Now colleagues and and some and family knew that I had it, but I didn't go public per se mm-hmm. about my illness until probably a year after. And for me, it was, let me try to figure this thing out, get my plan in order. So I think, you know, it it is safe for us to, you know, figure out what feels right for us. Mm -hmm. It is. It's very personal. And and that's true with any physical thing that you're going through or emotional or, you know, financial, whatever. We've all got a list of things that you know, happen in our lives. And yeah, so it's very personal when you decide when you're ready. Okay, so I've been waiting this whole time (laughs) to talk about your trip to Everest. And by the way, in the background there, you're hearing the sound from the video of Lori's team making it to the summit of Everest. Wow. So when when was it? Let's start with that. I went to uh, Nepal to climb Everest in... 2009, which was 10 years after my diagnosis of MS. So it was monumental in many ways. And Everest takes two months to climb. So I was actually there from the end of March through the end of May when I summited. But it takes 10 days to walk just to base camp. 
I like how you just said walk. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Most people I've, the people I know who've done it, said it was the hardest thing they've ever done in their lives just to get to the base camp. So it's, it is. It's a, it's so a, you don't just pull up to the base camp in your car and no. park. And- no, but you know, nowadays people take all kinds of shortcuts and they'll take a helicopter to base camp. Well, no, you need to walk yourself slowly to base camp so that you start to acclimatize. But uh, so it takes you 10 days to get there. And then over the next two months, you go through a series of camps, camp one, camp two, camp three, camp four, and up to the summit. So yeah, it's, it's quite a long endeavor. And I'm not sure if our listeners have read about what happens uh, over those two months. And it, well, from what I understand, a lot of it is going to the next base camp and s- trying to get over the altitude sickness and just act or getting used to it, which means having headaches and nausea and, and not feeling good for a few weeks. Is that right? Yes. You have to acclimatize slowly. And, and I was told if somebody could magically drop you on top of Everest without walking, you know, any way, you would lose consciousness in a matter of minutes and die shortly afterwards because your body hasn't produced enough red blood cells to, you know, continue with the living process. And you, you can't do it at a fast pace. So what you do is you start, you walk up to camp one. It may take you five, six, seven, eight hours. You drop a load of gear you come back down and you sleep at low camp. Next day, you go back up to camp one, retrace all those hours and steps and sleep at high camp, at camp one. Then the next day, you're going to go up to camp two, drop a load, come back down, sleep low, and then continue up the mountain at that pace where you're repeating everything. But then the strange part on Everest is that once you get up to Camp 3, only one camp to go, you come all the way back down to base camp, and then you hike all the way back down Valley so that you can fatten up and uh, rest your body because, you know, I'd lost 10 or 15 pounds. Most of the men lost probably 20 or 25 because you're exerting so much energy. And so you go down, you fatten up for a week and you rest. Then that last week on Everest, you climb very quickly because now your body's acclimatized somewhat and and you make a, a quicker journey up the mountain and then get up to high camp, camp four, if you're lucky, you summit. And then it takes you about three days to hike out as opposed to all the days it took to get there. So it's a long, arduous task. I like losing 25 pounds part, but the rest of it, I don't know. <laughs> but from, a, from an exercise standpoint, the reason why people lose weight on Everest is they're always working. They're asleep and their heart rate's at 120 beats a minute. Uh, so even laying there, just trying to do day-to-day survival of your body, you're it's like running a marathon. So it's, it never, your body never takes a break. But did you do Diamox? I did not do Diamox. On all of the mountains, 
when you get to a certain elevation. If you're climbing quickly, Diamox can be a really helpful medicine. But for me, the reason I did not use Diamox on Everest was because the sensations you get from taking that medicine mimics the MS sensations. Interesting. The first time I climbed huh. uh, Kilimanjaro, I took it, and it gave me numb lips and numbness in my face and tingling in my fingertips. And I realized later, after I'd been diagnosed with MS, that when I climb, I need to know if I'm having symptoms and not wonder, gee, is it the medicine I'm taking or what's happening? So... So no, I don't take it when I climb. So you're not explain to me and others who don't. What what, what is that? Diamox <laughs> is a medication that uh, is used to treat high altitude sickness, or can right. be used to try do high altitude sickness. And what it does is artificially increases your respiratory rate, which means it makes you breathe heavy when you're just laying okay. down. You'll be huffing and puffing to get more oxygen into your body. So when people often go to high altitudes, they'll take this medication, but Obviously, there are side effects that go along with it. So all adjustments you've had to make because of your diagnosis. Yes. And on a mountain like Everest or uh, the Vincent Massif in Antarctica, you're climbing slowly and for a lot of days. Denali is the same thing in North America. It used to be called Mount McKinley Denali, back to its original name. But you climb slowly enough that your body does acclimatize on its own for the most part. And yes, you get headaches if you don't drink enough water or you're gaining too much altitude in one day. But you need to learn how to really make your body function with you and not try to necessarily artificially change how your body's reacting to what's happening. So I'm sure on Everest, uh, there were times or on any of these hikes, there are times where you're just like, I don't know if I could take another step. Uh, or you know, I, maybe I'm reading or maybe I'm making that up. But uh, did you have those cases where you're just like, I just can't take another step? Well, on Everest, that was a daily event. Like, um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, as you got higher, as How you did got you get higher, you yeah, you'd take a, a step, and then you might have to breathe seven or eight breaths, and then you could take another step. Wow! And then breathe seven or eight breaths and take another. But mentally, I was not going to quit for any reason, and. And that's why I always go with a really great climbing company because I need them to tell me you're done because I would have crawled up. I was so, so motivated to be there to, to complete the goal of climbing the seven summits, but also to tell myself life is what you make it. And I didn't attach any any weight to the outcome if i hadn't made it wouldn't have mattered you know i would have gone back again and tried again <laughs> personally but but my goal was you know get out there and do what you can while you can and 
no excuses. So every morning I'd get up in my tent and go, yay, I can't believe they didn't send me home yet. (laughs) I'm still here and they don't know I'm not very good at this. You know, you train, you you do all those things, but, you know, self-doubt always comes in. But uh, so every step that I took was with intention because I wanted to be there. And this was my dream and my goal and I wasn't going to stop. So it's a little stubbornness is always good. Yeah. My mother would have said that (laughs) (laughs) if she were still alive. (laughs) So tell me about your team on, on, on the mountain going up Everest. Did you have Sherpas with you or what? Tell me about your team along with you. Yeah, on Everest, really the the unsung heroes are the Sherpa teams. And uh, our group had 15 climbers and four guides and then a Sherpa team that would carry some of the gear back and forth because on a climb like Everest, you have to have two of everything. You know, they you leave a set of warm clothes and a sleeping bag and extra gear at the highest camp that you've achieved so that if you had to retreat back there, you'll already have things. But the Sherpa's job primarily was to transport things between one camp and the next so that when we pulled into camp, our tents were set up. Very different from climbing on Denali or, you know, in Antarctica, you did you were your own Sherpa, <laughs> but, uh, but on, on uh, Everest, the infrastructure there is vital because of the safety. You're hooked into a line the whole time you climb from base camp up, no exceptions. You're hooked in to uh, running protection, they call it. And the Sherpas carry things back and forth and ferry you know, loads of food, because like I said, you're gone two months. So it's more than we could just carry on our backs. Now, did you tell the members of your team that you have MS and did they adjust at all? Or did you just tell them, yes, I may have this, but I'm pushing through? Or how did that work? You know, I guess in my head, you know, did that impact, having MS impact how you were treated and how you went through the the climb? You know, early on, I, I didn't divulge MS on earlier climbs, but once I got strong enough and Denali was really the turning point that I thought I can do this, you know, I can attempt Everest. So by the time I got to Everest, it was a very small part of my story. I'd I'd had my proving ground. And like I say on any climb, you know, I've trained really hard. I trained four hours a day, every single day for a year. And I am going to do my best. And I won't ask for any help, but I'm happy to help you in any way that I can. So you get up there and they know that you're not going to be the whiner that says, oh, would you guys carry this for me? (laughs) (laughs) Because especially on, you know, Denali, I'm carrying 60 pounds, pulling 60 combined, you know, 120 pounds, that's, you know, pretty close to climbing weight where the bigger, stronger, heavier men are carrying the exact same amount of weight. They see you doing it and they know that you're there 
because you're serious. So, so yeah, it's, and we had such wonderful teams. People supported each other. And so I didn't feel a real need to make a big deal about the MS, mm-hmm. but the climbing company on, on a dangerous mountain like, you know, Everest and Antarctica and Denali, they had to know my, yeah. I had to, you know, divulge that a year in advance, really. And I get it, a permission slip from my doctor. Seriously, <laughs> I did. And and uh, would bring along any medication that I possibly might need if things went wrong. So I was absolutely prepared. But they they check your strength every day and, and you're in or out at their whim. You, know? you must have so, been very entertaining to your doctors. You know, let me re-sign this prescription for this, this. <laughs> Oh, they want, she wants to go to Everest. <laughs> Climb Everest. You must have been very entertaining for your doctors. Oh, I'll tell you, you know who else I was entertaining for was I had to get a bank loan to climb Everest. It's any way you look at it, it's a hundred grand. Wow. And I had just come off of uh, doing a half marathon on the Great Wall of China that year, doing the climb of Kosciuszko that year, and Antarctica, which was 40,000. So I'd done those three things because, you know, I'm now almost 52, you know, on that year. And I thought, I got to get these done. So I go to the bank and I ask for a loan <laughs> for almost 100 grand. And they looked at me and they said, well, ma'am, are you going to put a down payment on a house? And I said, no. And they said, a really nice car? <laughs> I didn't tell them I'd been driving the same Subaru for a decade. You know? And I said, no. And they said, well, what would you like this money for? And I said, and I, you know, sat up straight and I said, I'm climbing Everest. <laughs> and I could just see the look on their face like, now, get a load of this one. <laughs> no, you're a chick, and I heard you had MS. Yeah. So they, the guy says to me, would your dad co-sign the loan? So I called my dad, and I said, would you come down to the bank and co-sign oh, wow. the loan for me? So anyway. Did you they, send them the video yeah. once you got up there? Did you <laughs> Did you give them a DVD or whatever? Like, here I am. But uh, I paid them back. I, I started speaking, you know, and telling my story mm-hmm. after I got back and I was able to pay back that loan fairly quickly. So, nice. but uh, yeah. So walk <laughs> us through Summit Day of Everest. You have to get up crazy early, don't you? Uh, well, sort of. <laughs> that would, that would, uh, lead one to believe that you ever fell asleep because you're so nervous. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But you have an, a dinner in the afternoon, which at high camp at 26,000-something feet amounts to the Sherpas rip open a pack of, you know, maybe oatmeal or some kind of noodles, and they put it in hot water, and that's your your dinner because there's no cooking at that elevation and they basically can boil a little bit of water on the little gas stoves that they bring along. So you have that late afternoon and you sleep in your tent with your crampons on and your oxygen tanks. (laughs) And you're going to get, you know, awakened at, you know, like 10 at night to start the summit. 
So you're laying in your tent with two other people, and all of a sudden you'll hear somebody gasping for air, you know, <gasps> you know, this sound. And it's because their oxygen tank has run out, and we practice this ahead of time. So as that person's laying there, you're unscrewing your tank and putting a new tank on, and then all of a sudden, you know, they can breathe again. So we go through this with all three of us, and pretty soon the Sherpas come to the, the tents, and they say, it's time. Here's your cup of tea, and we're going. So you get out of the tent, and then they don't leave anything to chance. They check your oxygen tank. They make sure that you're turned on, you're ready to go, your crampons are tight, your pack is tight, everything's ready. So you walk all through the night with your headlamp and up a very steep headwall to start with and, you know, on and on through the night and all of a sudden sunrise starts to, you know, happen and I looked down and I remember it was just the ma most magnificent pinks and oranges, the sky, you know, as the sun was coming up. And way, way, way down below, we could see this bank of clouds. So you continue walking, you know, through the day, 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 8 a.m. And you, you rarely stop except to change tanks because if you stop, you won't want to start again. And you're moving so slowly anyway, you know, clipping into your lines and moving your, you know, your uh, ascender up and down. So finally we get close to the top and the team by that point is really broken up. And each person had, person had a Sherpa with them to make sure you were safe because everybody got so spread out. Our head guide turned around and had to go back down because his feet were getting so cold, he had to warm them on the belly of another guide. And he said, this isn't worth losing my toes. Wow. He went down. Second in command was coughing so hard from altitude sickness, he cracked some ribs. Wow. He had to turn around and go down. So we're now going up individually with our our Sherpas, and up on top, the head guide that was there to finish up this climb with us, and the head Sherpa were waiting at the top, and I remember getting up there, and and it was incredibly difficult. I mean, you talk about awful climbing experience, getting around the Hillary Step, you know, it's 8,000 foot drop off on either side and, and, you know, you're just trying to maintain. But I remember getting up there and I had a satellite phone and I called my dad and it, it kept giving me a message. You're in China, no service in China. And it's like, no, I'm on the Nepalese side. You know? <laughs> I'm thinking to myself and, and finally I get through and I, I remember going, Dad, Dad. And he's like, Lori, Lori, because they knew around 10 in the morning uh -huh. we would be summiting if that worked. And, and he said, where are you? <laughs> and I said, I'm on the summit. And he started oh, wow. crying. I started crying. And he said, now we've got to get you down. And, <laughs> and all those clouds we saw down in the valley 
came up and all of a sudden it was just this whiteout. And so we were up there about 10 minutes, turned around, went back down, the most dangerous part really, coming back down to that high camp. I passed a body frozen in the ice and you know, you're just kind of struggling to make it back to your tent. So summer day, it was about 16 hours of nonstop movement and exhaustion, but... Worth but, uh, every step, was, I bet. Yeah, yeah, it was quite an experience. And then on the way to get back down, uh, how long does it take to get back down? It's probably a lot quicker than going up, obviously. It is, but it from that high camp down to base camp, we made it in a couple of days. But what was strange there you know, you're, again, still sleeping with oxygen tanks on and got up after summit night. You know, we go back and lay down and I got up and I started to walk to the line to hook on to go down and I could hardly move. And And I thought, well, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm exhausted. And the the guide said to me, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. And he said, turn around. And I turned around and he said, your oxygen tanks turned off, not oh, on. No, no. <laughs> and he said, tell me when you feel better. Two cranks. It's like, oh, there we go. <laughs> so you walked about two days down. And by the time we got down to base camp, it was a blizzard. And uh, when in our tent that was set up at base camp already, and in the middle of the night, we heard the Sherpas yelling, you know, shake your tent. We, it had snowed about three feet over that tent, and all the breathe holes were being covered. So they're scraping the tents with baking sheets, and wow. we're shaking from the inside, and, and we ended up evacuating. We had to leave everything pretty much and evacuate to get out. So, so the, you know, the adventure didn't stop until the day I got on the, <laughs> wow. the plane in Kathmandu to fly home. What an incredible And even story. that's an adventure and in Kathmandu. So, so uh, this is sort of a, you know, personal kind of question. Uh, when, when you end something as big as a trip up Mount Everest, is there a sort of a letdown period at the end of it? Is it almost like, oh God, now what? I've been working so hard for this. What what happens now? Yeah, that's a great question because this goal took me 16 years, start to finish, to climb the seven summits. And so when I got down, I thought, you know what? I don't need to do another climb for me. You know, this this is this was the biggie. What I want to do is to help other people with MS experience that feeling of satisfaction that you were able to do more than you thought possible. So two years after Everest, I arranged a climb of Kilimanjaro for people with MS, and we took four people with Parkinson's, another autoimmune disease also, and each person with the disease had a partner without one. And we got them paired up a year in advance so they could bond as friends. And we did this climb together. And oh, cool. it really was more meaningful than any of the climbs, in my opinion, to me, because it was 
helping other people realize that our strength is inside of us. And all of those people have gone on to do things that they didn't think possible and lots of adventures. And we wrote a book together and we just, we did a lot of things to help put a new face to MS or a different face and to just get on with our own lives in a really positive way. Well, if you ever do that again, I will be there for Mike. I'll be Mike's okay. person to go up Kilimanjaro. Well, yeah, you better start working on me now for that one. <laughs> but Well, yeah, the funny thing too, you know, my dad and I did the first Kilimanjaro climb together. So on the the return, you know, round two Kilimanjaro climb, I asked him if he wanted to be my partner. And at that point, he was, gosh, 78 years old, wow. I think. Wow. Something like that. I don't know. But anyway, he almost made it to the top a second time. But wow. uh, so it was full circle in so many ways to bring that that group of people back to Kilimanjaro. But okay. for me, you know, I don't need to do any more proving to myself that I'm, you know, going to not define myself by the MS. And I wanted to really help other people not define themselves by the label either. And you're still doing that uh, with this podcast, but other are you still doing that in other ways? You know, I've, I've done several trips where I've taken other people with MS. Um, I did some amazing helicopter hiking in British Columbia where you stay in a remote lodge and the helicopter drops you on a mountaintop or next to a lake or by a glacier. And you hike for a while with a guide. And and then if three people are tired and want to go back to the lodge and sit by the sauna, they can do that. Or if, nice. you know, this group wants to go farther, they can. And so, again, this was arranged for people with MS and Parkinson's and then, you know, friends to come along and be, you know, support cheerleaders and that kind of thing. So we've had a lot of adventures and many of the people that went on the Kilimanjaro trip, we get together every couple of years for a reunion. So, so you, you develop bonds and uh, it's, it's definitely empowerment for all of us on so many levels. All right. So we're taking the nice. podcast on the road and up the mountain. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> so there's a couple of questions that we ask all guests of our show, one of which is, is there anything positive that you can think has come from your MS? Oh, there's so much positive that has come from it. I gave myself permission to just get out and try things that I might never have done had I not been afraid of that label of MS. So that was a very, very positive thing for me just to say, I don't know if I can do it, but I'm going to try because what have I got to lose? And, you know, another positive was that I got to meet so many strong and amazing people with MS, with speaking engagements around the world. And, and they're such heroes. You know, I, I'm a lucky one with MS, you know, and I'm the first to admit it that, you know, I can get up and I can go outside this afternoon and shovel snow and, you know, walk up a flight of stairs. 
there are people with MS that I know that can't do those things. And those, those are the heroes. And those are the people that, that I thought of every step of the way going up Everest. And so, you know, so much good has come out of it for me personally, because I've been inspired to, to make the most of it because I'm pretty darn lucky. And I, I am not going to take that for granted. Nice. And, and then we also like to leave our guests with a feeling of hope. Uh, what would you, what, what hopeful advice or would you say to uh, people with MS? What reason is there for hope right now? Oh, there's so much hope. Please remember that your strength is mental and physical and that nobody knows for sure what your course of progression might be. I was told in that very first year that it was progressing quickly and I might very shortly need to be in a wheelchair. That didn't happen. And nobody knows for sure what will happen with your MS. So live your healthiest life. You know, I go to the gym every other day and I try to do strength training. I do stretching. I do meditation. I drink my energy shakes every single day. I get a really good night's sleep and I wake up with a smile on my face and say, you know, I just, I want to find joy in my life. And so if I can pass on any message, it's not to give up hope because we make our own health and our own good luck in, in so many meaningful ways and do what you can now with what you have. Well, that's a you. perfect thing for people with MS or the other 7 billion people on the planet, whether they have MS or not. A hundred percent. Thank you so much, Lori, for joining us and sharing your amazing story. <laughs> thank you. I really appreciate it. And again, thanks for all you do to help change the face of MS and right. bring awareness. And as you, as you heard, Nick's already welcoming himself onto yep. the next, the next, <laughs> the next trip up the mountain. So maybe we'll we'll do the podcast. It might be three minutes long because that's all the oxygen we have up there, but it'll be fun. <laughs> well, that was awesome. That was exactly what I was hoping we'd get from that interview. Just amazing what she did after a diagnosis like that, because it's easy for you to kind of you know crawl crawl up in a ball and say you know well let me just wait for as we talked about right wait for the wheelchair as as a lot of people first re think in their head when they get the diagnosis but she showed life doesn't stop with an ms diagnosis and i think one thing she was clear about is not everybody is going to be climbing mount everest but yeah. everybody has their own version of mount everest you don't have to literally climb the mountain but you, there is something that everybody with ms has that is such a stretch they do everything that's possible, and they can still make it happen. So get out there and climb your Everest. Exactly. And by the way, remember the sound we were playing earlier in the podcast from the video of her team making it to the summit of Everest? That video is on our website, mastering.ms, courtesy of Alpine Ascents International. Plus, on our website, you can also see her amazing TED Talk on her adventure. Thanks for listening to this episode, and please subscribe. You can do it at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else where you listen to us. I even tell my uh, Siri or my Alexa just to play it, the Mastering MS podcast. So it's simple. It's very strange to hear my voice coming from Siri, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we want to hear from you as well. What do you want to hear on this podcast? Again, this is your podcast. So reach out to us. Mastering.ms is our website. Mastering.ms. We want to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Nick Irons. And I'm Mike Marillo. And this has been the Mastering MS Podcast. <laughs>